All right, we're going to start. Hello, I'm Ira Kirschenbaum. I am the editor of the Journal of Orthopedic Experience and Innovation. Um, I also am doing a shameless plug for the Ortho Show here. I'm wearing a shirt that Scott Sigmund gave me. Um, I am not getting, that is not a paid announcement yet, but I will see what Scott has to say. I have the absolute pleasure today of introducing the future of orthopedics. Someone who represents the future, because the future I think is in very good hands from what I saw at OSET a couple of years ago when Dr. Brent Sanderson came, went on stage and gave this presentation and was the award-winning paper for most innovative paper of the session. He then turned it into an article for Joey um, I'd like to uh, introduce Brent, who is uh, he'll tell you what he's doing now, where he's been, where he's going, and then we'll talk more about the topic and the article. Brent? Perfect. Thank you for that uh, really, really too big uh, introduction. The future is bright because I stand on the shoulder of giants behind me, but uh, glad to be here. And thank you, Joey and Ira, for having me and, and can't wait to get into the topic at hand today. But a little bit about me. I grew up in upstate New York in Rochester, uh, deep in the snow, uh, played hockey almost every day I could. Um, we built a hockey rink in the backyard and then decided that was it was time to move out west. So I went to Missouri for med school and then continued on to California for residency training. And then like a boomerang, came back to the cold uh, Rochester North and uh, now a sports fellow here at the University of Rochester. And Luckily, they like me enough to keep me on as faculty next year, so I'll be sticking around. Excellent, excellent. That's a great program there, and it's really good that you're with us tonight. Um, so tell us, give us a summary of this study and maybe a history of how it sort of came about. All right? Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to, and I, you know, I'll keep everything very brief because I know we're talking about you know, optimization and diabetes with a bunch of orthopedic surgery surgeons or interested colleagues tonight. So it'd be nice and quick. And, but uh, it came about, I was an intern and we had a total knee patient on the floor that unfortunately developed a pretty bad infection after surgery. And looking through the chart, there was minimal documentation. And actually I was listed as the patient's primary care physician. So that should have been my first red flag. And I had seen him in the, in the resident clinic before, beforehand. And of course, you know, every every patient we learn from, and this was one that I learned from, and we got an A1C the day after, you know, we developed this infection and it was a 13. So we knew we had uh, messed up our pre-optimization um, the, at the start. And unfortunately, this guy's course was changed because we didn't do a good enough job. And so that's what started this whole project. And after that, we started getting A1Cs on every single patient that walked through the door of our clinic. And through that process, we kept identifying a lot of patients that, number one, didn't have a primary care physician, and so we needed to connect them with one. And number two, a lot of them had high A1Cs and no diagnosis of prediabetes or diabetes. So this study was really the impetus of this one patient that really has proven um, to help a lot of patients down the line. And um, I was glad to learn from the one patient, and I keep that in the back of my pocket as I keep going in my career and fellowship and beyond. It's great. It's a great study and it's in, 
in being persistent in in looking at this stuff and saying, oh, I just had a lot of people may just say, hey, I had this one patient at A1C at 13. It's a one off. You know, what made you make the jump from like dismissing it as a one off to maybe there's a problem here? You know, Houston, there's a problem. What what was the jump? <laughs> I think I think it was a personal jump for myself is uh, maybe you can say it's my Catholic guilt or how I was brought up, but I don't let every, you know, a stone go unturned. And so, you know, and I was the person who saw the patient in clinic. So I didn't like the feeling of knowing that I could have probably done something differently in the clinic and just a just one single order might have changed the course of the patient. So I was already full force on this. It was just about convincing the clinic staff in the hospital that it was worth to put up with me bothering them about ordering an A1C on patients that uh, they, the insurance company may say no, no about. Right. It's four, four and a half dollars test. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It was a tough sell. Let me tell you as an intern. Yeah. Well, you know, anytime you go before a board of people at a hospital, like a PT committee or a um, committee that does labs, you know, they look at the whole hospital uh, and say, boy, we spent $10 million on labs last year. Let's deny Dr. Sanderson's request for to save people's lives. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you a kind of a loaded question. I'm ready. Is when you indicate someone for a joint replacement, is that the moment they get prediabetes and diabetes? Or are we looking at a epidemic in the population that's already kind of there? Yeah, I think that was a good loaded and leading question. And I, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly that, that that snapshot in time where I'm indicating a patient for a total knee replacement is that we're probably 10 years too late, if not even more. And so I think this is a, is a huge problem in our country is that, you know, everything's identified a little bit too late. And I think if we can get on top of it a little bit earlier or identify it, once we do and get it to the right source, as in my internal medicine or family medicine colleagues, that's they'll be in better hands. You know, it, I, again, it, it's, it's such a great and innovative study and a way to look at things. You know, sometimes we now, I now can question all the uh, studies from, from the people who are experts in, J, in uh, infections, such as Jay Parvizi is a you know, brilliant researcher in, and great orthopedic surgeon in, uh, and, and what, what an infection rate is. Maybe those surgical site infections that we're reporting on are hidden diabetes. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think a lot of the literature search that I did for this paper showed, you know, the high A1C over 7.5 in some papers and eight, eight, eight in others showed an increased risk of infection and complication. And most recently, I was just doing a little literature dive and a, a deep dive into PubMed before this talk. And, you know, it looks like hyperglycemia is the real uh, player, especially within the month or weeks leading up to surgery. And, right. and I'd be interested to see more studies come out. And even a follow-up to this study is, is it the A1C or is it that hyperglycemic state within two weeks or that, that perioperative period that maybe we'd have a really good effect on? If we can get that patient in to see a primary care doctor, even if it's a week before surgery and somehow get them on insulin metformin, the oral medications that I don't know much about, right. then maybe they'd have a better outcome post-operatively. And we just change the course of their post-operative and basically their life after surgery. You know, I'm going to um, put up a, 
slide and see if some of the audience want to comment on this. This is an interesting slide. This, By the way, this talk is not sponsored by any company. I use this drug, Zoretta, um, but it's very interesting. It is a drug that does not, it is triamcinolone, which we use for osteoarthritis, right? So we'll call them pre-joint replacement people. And if your study's correct, which is almost 30% of the people in that age group who need joint, who are scheduled for joint replacement, have pre-diabetes or diabetes, then probably 30% of the population that's in this group, this somewhat obese pre-op knee group, and when I ask them, do you have diabetes? They say no. Probably they, they just say no because they haven't been tested. And as something like a drug like Zoretta, which is triamcinolone, and again, this is this is not a plug. This is the drug I use and believe in, does not increase the plasma level of glucose like triamcinolone does. That's why I sort of asked that question. Maybe it's the surgeon saying you need joint replacement surgery that causes the high glucose. No, no, it's not. It's not. It's not the case. <laughs> but but good. so you have a couple of slides from your talk. I, I want you to go through a couple of your slides. Uh, it was a it was a nice brief talk. And uh, then we'll open up for some questions uh, and I'll show a couple of other slides about pre-op optimization. Yeah, perfect. This will be again, very brief. Um, I know short and sweet is better. Can everyone see my slides? Okay. Yeah. Yep. Awesome. Mm -hmm. So this is just, you know, I think a, a nice title that one of the med students that was working with me came up as diabetics hidden in plain sight. I think it speaks for itself is that, you know, who are we missing out there? that has diabetes or pre-diabetes that we can just get a simple A1C test and get them to the right individual to, to treat them. So some of the study goals are just to identify the prevalence of undiagnosed diabetics in our community, and then look at some short-term clinical outcomes and any surgery delay due to glycemic control. So as a prospective study from 2018 to 2020, we looked at all adults undergoing elective orthopedic surgery through the resident clinic in Ventura, California. And an A1C test was performed on every single patient after that one total knee patient ruined my intern year slash maybe saved other people's lives and, and improved other people's perioperative outcomes. So that was back in 2018. And this is kind of just a roadmap. Down here in the left, we have preoperative protocol that goes into place. Everybody gets an A1C. And then the prospective study begins for about two years, and we had a 95% capture rate thanks to my co-authors and my residents that helped me out during that. This is our main slide. I'll focus your attention to the top right, is that these are the patients we found that had diabetes or pre-diabetes that had no previous diagnosis of it. So almost 30% of people that came through our clinic to have a pre-op appointment had diabetes or pre-diabetes. We looked at 173 patients, and that's that's how the 30% came out of it. And then 20% of patients had their cases canceled due to an elevated PR, uh, A1C being elevated. And then BMI was found to have an increased uh, association with a higher A1C level. So if you are on the fence about ordering A1C, I'd, I'd recommend that specifically in patients over uh, 30 BMI. And again, our main finding was 27.8% of people with no diabetes or prediabetes was diagnosed with uh, impaired glucose tolerance with an A1C test. 
So what are the goals and why do we do this is just to avoid intraoperative and mainly postoperative complication. The one where I was looking at and really was looking at was the infection risk after surgery. So in conclusion, we identified a high number of patients, up to one third of our patients were dysglycemic. An appropriate surgery delay was, a, was needed for preoperative medical optimization. So screening, screening with an A1C test allows us to to be the tip of the spear and get them to the right individual and the in the doctors that are a little bit smarter than us in that in that that sphere and be able to manage our patients a little bit better. That's great. And this is a beautiful California. As you can tell, I'm very tan right now, living in Rochester. So uh, I miss it uh, a little bit, if you will. But playing a lot more hockey now, so it's good. You get frostbite; it'll look like sunburn. It'll be, it'll look yeah, that's a good good advice. Good advice. Good advice. So let me ask around a little bit. I, I know who's on the screen. Uh, Dr. Redler, uh, has this been an issue that you notice in your practice at all, Mike? You know, I think that as a lot of orthopedic surgeons, and thanks, Ira, for, uh, for bringing me up here, um, <laughs> it is an issue that I'm certain has seen us, but we may not have seen it. And I think that if you go back a bunch of years ago and you have some, uh, an internist or an endocrinologist that says, hey, this surgeon is, this patient is not optimized because their hemoglobin A1C is too high. We totally ultimately got that. Be beyond that, I think that, you know, you wonder why some patients do well and other patients do not. And, and part of it may be the, the fact that as orthopedic surgeons and, and frankly, Honestly, a lot of internists may not uh, realize the subtle uh, importance of those that are either pre-diabetic or that we're not capturing in terms of the diabetes or comorbidities. And so you wonder why some of your patients don't do as well. This may well be part of the reason. All right. Um, do you routinely get um, any kind of any kind of test that is not outside the average just because it's prevalent in your community? The answer is absolutely not. Right. Um, I, I think that, um, you know, look, you have a patient needs surgery, they're, they're very anxious to have surgery. And the question is, do they need preoperative clearance? Right. And, you know, we know the answers. If they have diabetes, if they have heart disease, if they have significant hypertension, they're going to get it. Otherwise, they may not. So it clearly is absolutely a case of it's seen us. We've not seen it. Right. So that's a that's a great point. I mean, I it's to tell you an interesting uh, story that um, when when I came to the Bronx, we noticed uh, we have 20 22 percent of our patients have hepatitis or HIV and 16 percent and 7 percent, 16 percent hepatitis and 7% HIV. So I started getting um, hepatitis screens on every pre-op patient. I get a call from the Department of Health in New York State. And uh, they said, are you the doctor who ordered this test that came back positive for, um, you know, hepatitis B? And, uh, you know, there's, there's a few things you don't want in life. You you don't want 60 minutes outside in your waiting room. And you certainly don't want the Department of Justice calling you on the phone. 
uh, or the Department of Health. It was the Department of Health, not Department of Justice, Department of Health. And you definitely don't want the Department of Justice, you know? <laughs> um, that was so, a different day. Yeah, it's a different day. So the Department of Health calls me up and I said, yeah, I guess that was me. I was, I, I was, I thought I was going to get like, you know, slapped on the wrist. She said, that is really impressive that you picked up because they were monitoring there's this hepatitis B surveillance in New York State. And I said, I said, how did you even suspect that in this patient? And I said, it's just about 20% in the community. And we screen for it for everybody because it's 16 to 20% in the community. And she said, wow, that, that's pretty amazing. You know, I should have recorded it because I'm sure eventually the Department of Health will not have such nice phone calls uh, with me. But um, so that, that I thought was very interesting. Um, so anybody else have any uh, stories about pre-op um, pre situations? Because I want to show something else on my screen. Hey, um, I oh, hey. How are you? Good, good. I wanted to share something, um, maybe not directly related to the exact topic, but I would say that <clears throat> be careful what you order because um, even uh, anything that you order, it's outside your area of expertise. If you miss it or order it, you're liable for it. Yep. Uh, and I can tell you, um, without getting into any details, the only time I've ever been in, in, involved in litigation in my career is for a preoperative CBC that I ordered to someone I didn't need to order in, and a 47-year-old, but I was concerned because he was a smoker. I never saw the lab. Right. And it created a really difficult situation for me as the ordering physician, even though it was outside my area expertise and the patient had a clearance from a primary care physician. So do the right thing, but remember, um, good goodwill doesn't always get rewarded in the courtroom. So for anyone who doesn't know that, that's uh, Joe Abood uh, from Rothman Institute and from the uh, amazing course, Shoulder 360, which happened recently. It looks like he's beginning to recover, right, Joe? I have to have a hepatitis screen um, because <laughs> my liver failure, but otherwise I'm doing okay. Oh, it's... it's I'm, I'm so, kidding. Joe, you know what W and L stands for when you see that after a lab result? Yeah, we never look. You looked. think it's with the normal limits? No, it's, we never looked exactly right. Right. So, it's a great point because a lot of times um, when we order pre-op labs before the... So, in our hospital, I don't know how it is at other places, but in our hospital, the we order the pre-op labs, but... That we are that in anticipation of the preoperative optimization, where we have a preop optimization clinic run by internal medicine, not by anesthesia. Uh, we, and we did that primarily because we ex expected a number of diseases to pop up, and we wanted the internists looking at it rather than the anesthesiologists. Um, but we have a pretty extensive form they have to fill out. But every once in a while, until we clarified this, when there was what was called a um, critical value, they will call the orthopedic attending who wrote the order. And they'll say, the potassium is 2.1. And, and I, you know, and now they're calling me. And I think Joe's right. You know, you write the order, you're responsible for it. So we actually had changed a policy that went in the hospital that when a pre-op order is done, we actually added the pre-op admitting uh, to pre-op attending, 
um, which sort of released us and they they were the attending of record. Um, but because, um, you know, a potassium of 2.1, my answer is, um, you know, go to the emergency room. It's, it's kind of what every orthopedic, every orthopedic surgeon says. I want to show this one slide. I hope I got the right one. Um, um, th this is not going to be it, but this is it. So this is actually the pre-op optimization review that's done at our hospital. And it's done by the internist in, they fill out this entire deadly form. And this is anything that could cancel the case or put the patient at risk. And they look at everything from platelets to sodium, creatinine, CD4, A1Cs, MRSA, viral load in HIV. I just want to have surgery by you so I can get all this checked and uh, be okay and then cancel. Can I do that? Yeah, you know what? It's not It's not a problem. It'll come with a $100 gift certificate from Joey. <laughs> Um, you weren't here earlier, but I am wearing my Sigmund Ortho Show uh, thing, Follow the Fro. Um, and um, so this is pretty extensive. We got this off of an article primarily done by Kevin Bozick um, over at Dell Medical School. We added more things to it, so it became absolutely almost out of control, So, which is why the pre-op internists only seem to last about a year or two before before they 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 cry for help they cry for help all right so, question for you i'm sorry how often are you able to get patients to see your preoperative clearance system versus an outside physician because that's an area of contention that happens when you send to let's say your hospital system uh the primary gets the other their primary primary gets defensive yeah also a lot of people don't find it convenient now i know health systems are different but we have a broad brought in catchment area. So it really is difficult for us to yeah. have that system reproducible every office and hospital we're affiliated with. I think you're right. I think, um, you know, maybe there's a role for telehealth in that for, you know, for big systems where you can order the test you want and get evaluated by your internist that way. We, we're in a different situation, you know, like the movie Escape from New York, where Manhattan was a penal colony and no one left Manhattan or came into Manhattan. No one leaves the South Bronx for their care and no one comes into the South Bronx for their care. So we actually let the local clinics that take care of the patients know that we will take over and take over the risk of the preoperative clearance. And originally I did get some pushback, Joe, you know, from some people said, we, we know the patient. I said, you know the patient, but we're responsible when they hit the operating room. So just let us have this one visit and uh, or these two visits. Um, so we're, we're, we have the advantage slash disadvantage of controlling our vertical and horizontal in a closed urban, what we call a closed urban population. But I think if you're um, a referral center like Rothman or like Mayo or similar, you know, there's another one south of me in New York. I usually don't like to mention the name. So um, we would, um, they must have it much harder when people come from far out on Long Island or from Connecticut, New Jersey, and the internist wants to write the note. It, it's a problem. Um, but I, I think it's, I think it's better care 
to, to have, we really developed a full-time PAT with internal medicine again, not anesthesia. Because like I, we have like a, we have a 15% cancellation rate for medical diseases uh, that, that they pick up. So, you know, it's, it's a pretty comprehensive executive physical, Joe, you know? Yeah, I'm there. Can you do a hip replacement on me? I'm going to schedule for you. A schedule, yeah. You'll be, you'll we'll bring it up to 16% cancellation rate, you know? So, Ira, part of the challenge is, frankly, in a lot of communities that are not as, uh, you know, connected as your system is, is, you know, you want to do surgery, things have to be done in a semi-urgent fashion. You know, the internist or the cardiologist, whoever it is, is so busy. And, you know, part of their main job is not doing medical clearance so that you can take care of your patient. I mean, I think that's that's a problem in a lot of communities. Yeah. Uh, at, at you know, so we're we're sort of uh, connected, though not uh, directly related to Hartford Healthcare in Connecticut. And so what they've done is they've established these big, you know, sort of point of service clinics where you can send no matter who the internist is, you can send your patients in for preoperative clearance that they'll do within 24 hours, which has ended up being fantastic because the cardiologist doesn't have time; they don't want to write a note. The internist is overburdened. And so patients are otherwise getting delayed with surgery because of this. And so by having this sort of centralized area where you can send patients for clearance, it's ended up being a, a, a very good situation. You know, they've got involvement in a lot of our surgical centers. So it's a win-win situation for them, but it has created a more efficient system. So who are they exactly? Or who, I mean, who Hartford Healthcare uh, in the very small state of Connecticut where I live is actually now by far and away the biggest healthcare system in the state. They they they're they're much bigger than Yale New Haven. So they offer that service. That they offer that, and uh, you can get them in within 24 hours. They can you know, and and it's a much better system. Otherwise, it's you know, you you find your scheduling coordinator trying to beg the cardiologist to see the patient. Yeah. The intern is trying to beg the patient, and they've already got a full schedule. And they don't, they're not really feeling so obligated to acquiesce to see your patients so you can do your surgery because that's not really their, their main goal. So it becomes a otherwise a roadblock for care. But by having a healthcare system that does that, that really has helped to expedite care of our patients. I mean, I think it's a, an amazing point in that, you know, when I was an intern and certainly when I was a, a fellow at, at the Rothman Institute, um, I remember Dick Rothman had one, two internists, two internists that he, that was sort of on retainer of sorts, who were the only two that every patient had to see one of these two internists. I think they were in practice together. This was in 1990, 91, um, sort of, sort of post Charlie. But, uh, you know, I will say that that's where I got the original idea that we would build. When I when I went to the Bronx, we we actually actually drove down and had lunch with Dick Rothman and Mike West, and you know, and one of the things we talked about was preparing patients for surgery. And you know, you just can't keep on repeating this thirty to forty year old story, which which you're saying, Mike. You know, you know, it's still like that in a lot of places. We know it's a problem, so why are we not taking care of it? Brandon, Rochester, what do they do now for, for pre-op clearances? 
Yeah, I mean, it's great to hear that there's so many good programs out there that are using their internists well, and, and they have buy-in. Right now, we have anesthesia running our preoperative clearance program, and I've I've seen firsthand that yeah, they do a great job, but they also only see the patients within that week or maybe a couple of days before surgery because a lot of things are either urgent, urgent add-on quad ruptures or patella ruptures, some sports cases that are urgent add-ons that are the little bit sicker patients and they either get canceled right right away or they have to get delayed. And and it would be nice to have an internist there that might be able to manage their their issues a little bit differently and maybe get them to surgery the next week or or offer some suggestions. So you're going into a practice from your fellowship at the same place. Yep. What kind of influence do you think you're going to have? As much influence as a, as I did when I was an intern in Ventura. So uh, no, it'll be a, I think they'll be open to suggestions. And I think um, after reading all the literature for this paper and hearing everybody here today, I think I'll definitely recommend that an internist program be started and and be able to clear some of our patients. I think I am lucky that I'll be joining mostly a sports practice. So hopefully my patients will have a little bit less comorbidities, but I will be taking call and taking on patients in the acute setting. So I'll be looking forward to starting a program. I pretty much always thought that people went into sports for that reason, pretty much that they wouldn't have to treat sick patients in the, in the, uh, in the hospital pretty much. Right? I think it's, it's definitely part of the reason. It's not the main reason though. That's the main reason. Okay. Yeah. Sounds pretty good. Chris, did you notice or did you see, is there a higher prevalence of infection where you're doing a total joint on these diabetic patients versus a sport medicine patient where you may not be putting in as much metal? And, and is that part of the culprit in this as well? In our study, we didn't, unfortunately, we didn't, I was hoping that we would find that be the case that, you know, the implants were more associated with infection in the diabetics or the pre-diabetics. Unfortunately, I think this is just a little bit too underpowered. Um, as we speak, they're looking at the county hospital in Ventura as well, so we can get some more data and more power to the study. And I would not be surprised, like you said, if if the implant cases had a little bit higher risk, um, but we'll see. You know, it's, it's really fascinating. There, There is, um, you know, Donald Rumsfeld, who I believe was the Secretary of Defense under uh, Bush, too, um, had a great, great line that's been quoted over and over again, that there's the known knowns, the things we know, we know, the known unknowns, the, there's things we know, we don't know. And then there's the unknown unknowns, things we don't know. And we, and we don't know that we don't know that, you know, this study that you did, Brent, made me think of the unknown unknowns. Because it was so out of the box to say, oh, if you found 2% diabetes, I'd say, not a great study. But to find almost 30% yeah. of people going for joint replacement. And just so you know, a, a BMI of 30 in the Bronx, we, we order a nutritional consult because we find that, we find that to be someone emaciated. BMI of 30. Okay. Yeah. You know, BMI of 42 is sort of uh healthy and plump and 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 ripe for surgery. I gotcha. Yeah. But but you know, to make that jump, I, I just want to you know really uh applaud you guys for you know doing that. That that's finding an unknown unknown. 
Yeah, it's it's good. And I, you know, I appreciate the help from my co-authors in doing that paper. It took a lot of grunt work too. But you know, it also makes me a little uncomfortable about other unknowns that I don't know about. And I think the literature is still out on a lot of the nutrition, like you said, nutrition consult for the BMI of 30, but I think we still don't know what the appropriate nutrition is, even even after total joints. And I think there's a lot of literature coming out now more about vitamin D in our sports medicine population. And I'm sure more will come out as I progress through my career. Very interesting. We we just got a paper that I just sent out for peer review. Um, and it was on post-operative, the, the issue of post-operative swelling causing significant pain and holding back rehab and how maybe controlling swelling will also decrease surgical site infections and, and other things. So that may be another unknown unknown. What do you think? Yeah, I definitely agree. I think, you know, going back to my residency training is, you know, if we had a wound that was or a total joint that was draining after a few days, it's infected until proven otherwise. And I think some may argue that undue swelling may induce an environment, you know, bacteria loves to hang out in blood. And so if it's a hemarthrosis, they might increase the risk of having an infection. So I'd be interested to read the paper and see what outcomes they found. Right. You know, and, uh, this is uh, another paper out of upstate New York, interesting enough, from uh, Dr. Andy Wickline. Uh, we'll, we'll wait to see what the, how the peer reviewers eat this up, you know, and we'll see that. Um, I'd like to flip back to the idea of how we treat people conservatively in, in the population. You know, um, knowing, now knowing that 30% are potentially diabetics, you know, you saw the data I showed about the drugs already, how it doesn't increase the plasma glucose levels, but regular triamcinolone does. Um, just so you know, there was a recent uh, articles, a bunch of articles that got pressed from the American College of Radiology, um, not really my source of academic orthopedic information, where they had showed a study that triamcinolone or cortisone uh, increases the rate of osteoarthritis. So I actually called up the authors and I said, what was in the cocktail that you injected? And they said, we don't know. And I said, well, that's a problem because we know that lidocaine and bupivacaine are chondrotoxic, but we don't know that triamcinolone is. So why are you blaming on triamcinolone? And they said, we don't know. <laughs> and uh, since the national flower of the radiologist is the hedge, I figured that was the end of the conversation. Um, but would you, would you make a recommendation that if you were in clinic and someone had a BMI of 40, before you give them, before you go on a whole treatment plan, if you're a, would you, would you get an A1C? I'm very biased because of this study and my past experiences. So I, I recognize that. And I think, you know, I've read a really nice journal, you know, a yellow journal article about, you know, shared patient decision making. And I think that's really important. And as I progress through my young, young career is that, you know, just letting the patient know that I would be happy to give them an injection, but knowing the risks and benefits of that, as well as get them in touch with somebody else that can, can maybe manage their, their BMI or the nutrition status and, and debate about the A1C. And I think they still recommend, you know, the ADA and the, C, uh, the CDC still recommends that we can order an A1C if they have a BMI above a certain level. And so 
I would, would be okay ordering a one C now, if you ask me in five years, when I have a busy sports practice, I, right. I don't know. If I can tell you, I would do that every time, but I would hope that I would still have the wherewithal to refer them to a primary care physician. Right. To do that. Yeah. Uh, I think it's great. Um, before we continue, any other uh, comments on uh, what we've, what we talked about? Just want to ask around. All right. It's a good deal. So, What's the future now? Do we, um, are you expand, you're expanding on this study now quite a bit? Yeah, right, right now. So I looked at the original data and I wanted to see if there's any socioeconomic factors that maybe took into play. And I think our sample size was too small and the, the zip codes were too clustered for me to get any good data. But I think now we're going to get over hopefully a thousand patients from our county system. And I would not be surprised if, if we find some socioeconomic or some specific patient characteristics, or that even the surgeries are associated with either infection or more pre-diabetics or diabetics, depending on the area and the underserved population that that county hospital takes care of. So you did this study primarily out of a county hospital, right? So we did it out of the. So I we work at two different hospitals in Ventura. Both are about the same size. We did this current study out of the resident clinic that was run through. Um, multiple private physicians that dedicated their time to help the residents. So it was kind of everybody. It was, we took every single insurance, but now we are adding on and we're adding on the county patients that should give us at least a thousand patients to look at. Have you thought about expanding this into sort of multi-center to look at other, maybe other social determinants of health that may be contributing besides the diabetes? I think that's a great idea. Have I personally, I've not looked into it. I, I love this study. I love looking into this pre-optimization. I just need some more smart people to join the team to be able to help me do the multi-center study. Well, according to Mike Radley, you'll have to look to the internist for the smart people. Exactly. Or I'd like to say if they were so smart, they would have gone into orthopedics. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I think that, I think that, 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 that would have been it, you know? So any other comments you have about uh, whether this has a role? What about younger patients? Did you find an age differential? That's the one thing I couldn't find in the article. Yep. So uh, the hospital wouldn't let me do A1Cs. Uh, that, sorry, the IRB recommended I do not include patients under 18 in this study. Um, the IRB and I really got along a lot, as you probably all know, with the IRBs. Um, and so, but I did not find any uh, age gap or age differential between the A1C. But again, I think this power, this, the power of the study was too low to tell it. So, um, I'd be interested to see, and I think we could to do a lot more, um, a lot better for our patients if we were able to diagnose them earlier and earlier. So I'll be interested to see what the County patients and see if there's any age difference that we see. So, um, which IRB approved this, the County, the, the community hospital, the community hospital, correct. So I, I would recommend that you uh, share that IRB with me. I'll tell you sure. what, I'd like to do that at our hospital. You know, we have um, our social determinants of health have social determinants of health. <laughs> <laughs> just, just to give, give you a, yeah. a sense of that. Um, and it will be very interesting to look at issues of BMI, age, smoking, o- other factors you know, that, that have to do it, uh, that have to do with that. Um, what are you, what are you going to do? Here's the quiz of the day. What are you going to do when you want to do this? 
you know, let, let's flip you into a total joint surgeon or you know, you as a sports surgeon, you end up doing a hundred total shoulders a year. Okay. You flip and you're going to do shoulders now. Yeah. The plant again, BMI 30 and above. What's your process? You think if the hospital gives you some pushback of, we don't want to do A1Cs. Well, luckily, I have this paper that got presented by Joey, so I, I'm able to show him this uh, this talk in the paper. So that'd be number one. Um, but in reality, I think you know it was, it was hard enough for Ventura to, to change, but the one just one patient was able to change their mind, and, and me presenting to them once was able to give them give me the funding that was very minimal, and most of the time insurance covered it because we could convince them if their BMI was over a certain number, it it hit the criteria. And so I would I'd go at it from this direction first, and I'd be pretty uh pretty uh bullish on that. But if they gave me a lot of pushback, I think I would would contact my internal medicine team and just sit and try to get on the same team with them, right? And do it in the same aspect of starting a pre-optimization through an internal medicine team. If I had that many issues getting through there, so build a team around you and then come at it at multiple angles, and hopefully they can't say no to me. That's a great point. I mean, you're sort of beyond your young years on this. I mean, I, uh, at our hospital, we have, um, we actually have a PRP, which we give for free to the patients. Um, can have, I come down for one? Yes, 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 you can. Only in the lateral epicondyle. All right. um, we have um, um, Zoretta, as I said, we have Expro, we have Ayavera, we have all these things. And one of the things is we're a private hospital, not for profit, even though we treat a poor, poor group. It's a little harder when you're a county hospital and um, the bean counter is, you know, two cities away, right? You know, I want to ask some of the more senior surgeons on here, if, if, if people are on Ranjan or uh, Mike or Joe, uh, what's your process when you get pushback from the hospital on something you really want to use? You know, like, you know, drug, drug X, uh, let's assume they gave you a pushback on TXA, which I know is pretty, pretty inexpensive, but what if TXA became expensive? You know, what's your, what's your, what's your process to get these things through? It, could, it depends on the facility, right? So being in different facilities, it's, it's a very different process at the main hospital, which is where I do a lot of my surgeries. It's very laborious. It could take a year and a half and they could still decline it uh, based on, you know, uh, various um, input from other people that is outside of orthopedics. Um, like, for example, Expro is still not approved at our main hospital, but it is approved at our surgery centers and our specialty hospital. It's a point of friction, despite, you know, various attempts by uh, providers to say you'd like it, et cetera. We still can't get it in the main hospital. So really, it really just depends. I mean, people, you know, people hide behind uh, quality and they mix quality and, and service and cost together, right? So some things are self-serving, like convenience of start time. Something are really about quality, like pain and avoiding opioids. Um, and some things are purely about cost, where the health system tells you they care about quality, um, but it's really about cost and they hide it under quality. And they say that the quality hasn't been shown. There's no benefit to the patient. So, you know, that's unfortunately administrators, things they do to get the line items they want off the table. 
That's my experience. Yep. Mike? So, you know, I, I think that anytime that a hospital system or an ASC system says, no, you can't use that, it's just like the insurance companies. They're pretty, hope, they're pretty hopeful you'll just go away. And if you go away, then they've won. Uh, however, if you keep taking it up the ladder, argue in terms of patient safety, shorter hospital stay, shorter ASC stay, I think that overall we've been pretty successful because I think they pretty much assume that if you're really busy, you just don't have time to argue the point. Right. You know, my, my experience is, is with some of these more expensive options, we are actually better off at the hospital than at the surgical center because the hospital can bill for individual items where the surgical center is sort of a one rate for no matter what you do or use. Um, but I, I think that just, just like anything else in medicine, whether it's peer-to-peer -peer or the hospital, the ASC saying no, is if, if, you, if you don't take no for an answer and talk to them and then you treat them as a colleague, not as an adversary, I think we've been very successful. You have to say statements like, as we both know, and then you give the ad, as opposed to, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. And I think that's been pretty successful. Treat him as a colleague, don't take no for an answer. And, um, and, and then, you know, hopefully once you've done that once, it's less of an issue next time you have to use it. Interesting. Any other comments? What I've found is that if you can get other orthopedic surgeons as a group, if you approach the hospital, they usually tend to agree. I think you're right, Ranja. I, I think um, that um, there's some strength in numbers. Um, additionally, there's there's a phenomenon that happens sometimes, and you know this is Brent feed some information for you and your generation, and and uh, Brienne and others who are younger who are on this call that you, you don't assume your initial success. And let's say getting the A1Cs on pre-op or getting a, a, a drug like uh, Expiril on formulary is going to still be successful a year or two later. A lot of times what happens is the pharmacist looks at the bill of the whole hospital and says, look how much we're spending. And I encourage surgeons to, when they get approval for something new, like what you did with A1C, Brent, to continue studying it and continue studying the value of incorporating that modality. Because, you know, it's it's not a win if you get a drug on formulary and then a year later they cancel it out. Because, you know, as Mike said, you know, you, you get sort of tired out, try going back to the well a second time and uh, and doing that. So I really encourage people once they get uh, approval for something novel of the PNT level or at the hospital products committee level to do your own internal quality control QAPI and show its value. And they're less likely to take it off. Um, the head of pharmacy came up to me just about uh, three months ago and said, you know, we spent, you know, about $180,000 on Expiril. That's a lot of money. And I said, on one patient? On one patient, you spent $180,000? She said, no. I said, great. So we get we get $32,000 for a joint replacement, and you're talking to me about a $300 drug. Can I get into my car and drive away now? You know, it's typical orthopedic surgeon response. But um, she fortunately laughed and dropped the topic, you know. 
but they do come after you the second time around. So even if you get the A1C on the pre-op, they may take it off a year later and you won't, you won't even know it. You know, you won't even know it. So we're, we're sort of at the end. I wonder if anyone has some other questions or, or comments uh, before we uh, close it out. I'm just going to pause for a second. All right. Uh, good. So we're good. Um, uh, Brienne, what's the name of your cat? <laughs> um, it's Simba. It's actually not my cat. I'm pet setting. So I've got a whole zoo in here. <laughs> oh, great. Awesome. All right. Now that we clarified that in the orthopedic journal club, um, we're good. I want to sincerely thank Brent, who uh, this was an award-winning paper at OSET. Um, the award actually was chosen by Joey. <laughs> Uh, actually wasn't. It was actually a consensus winner of the most innovative topic. And uh, I think you've made a great contribution to, to orthopedics through this paper, Brent. And I hope you continue that in your career. Perfect. Well, thank you very much, Joey and Ira, for having me and, and all the comments. Uh, I look forward to many more of these journal clubs and sharing ideas in, in, in my uh, future career.